Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Isabella Weber, an assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. We're here to talk about many things, but her marvelous new book on China, and I underscore marvelous called How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the market reform debate has come out this year and it's causing quite a stir. Many of my friends have been knocking on my door. You gotta read this book, you gotta read this book. I did, now I'm saying it to you. You gotta read this book, you gotta read this book. Isabel, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a great, great pleasure to have a chance to discuss my book with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh. Well, it's how they say, it's our pleasure, and you have a lot to teach, which people will learn about here in this next 45 minutes to an hour. But let's talk about first, before we get in between the covers of the book and other thoughts that you have, I need to understand what inspired you to choose this topic and to write this book? What, what, what's going on inside your heart that brought this tremendous effort to the surface? Yeah, there were really two sources of um, inspiration. The first one was when I was an undergraduate student, an exchange student at uh, Beida at Peking University, um, studying economics there. And I was um, quite struck by finding that um, our Chinese professors were using the same economic textbooks um, by American economists that we were studying from back in Berlin. And that seemed quite puzzling to me since it seemed obvious that the Chinese economy was organized in ways quite different from the German or American economy, um, while at the same time the economics seemed to be identical. So that kind of raised the question on my mind, how could economics play a role in China when it was being taught in the exact same way as it was being taught in, in these radically different um, contexts? The second source of inspiration, I think, has to do um, with me being um, someone who grew up in, in Germany in the 1990s, when there was a sense of triumphalism around um, the, the end of the Cold War and the reunification of our country. Um, but by the time I entered university, we were um, in the middle of the um, Great Recession, and um, East Germany had, had by no means um, developed in the ways in which people had hoped in, 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 in the 1990s. And I was then, um, for a brief period, wo working um, for a German foundation on the China desk, so I had a chance to attend um, conversations between um, Chinese delegations and um, their German counterparts. In particular, the Chinese delegations were interested in meeting former officials from the German Democratic Republic. So there I was as a young um, undergraduate, uh, graduate, just graduated um, at these meetings, and especially at one occasion with the last prime minister of the German Democratic Republic, who to me was an unknown entity. I didn't even know his name before, um, and who clearly um, at that point was um, a, a basically ordinary retired person, where on, on the other side, um, 
the the Chinese delegation that was from some organization related to the state or party. Um, I don't even recall which which one it was, but it was quite clear that that um, that history had played out um, radically differently between um, those two sides at the table. So the question of how could history have played out so differently in the two contexts and in in, in German um, Democratic uh, Republic um, and, um, and, uh, uh, and, and the People's Republic of China um, was kind of an implicitly obvious question in that context. So being an economist and taking this together with the first question that came to me when I was an undergraduate student in, in Beijing, um, it led me to try to study the intellectual foundations, the kind of economic thinking, if you want, that would have underpinned um, China's market reforms and that has shaped um, China's path as being quite different um, and quite distinct from, from the other transitions from socialism that we have observed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, I understand uh, you know, from looking into your book that you addressed a question that many people were asking. How did China do so well when Russia, the Soviet, former Soviet Union, did so poorly in the what you might call adopting the orthodox economic shock treatment and China shows a different path. And it's not just how did they do well, how did they get the confidence to do well? What's the, what's the process of intellectual exploring and learning that brought them to that fork in the road where they chose a better path? Yeah, um, I think uh, it's important that in the 1980s, it was really an open-ended question how China would reform. It was also an entirely open-ended question what would happen to China's position in the world. In the year 1980, China's GDP per capita was less than that of Sudan or Haiti. So we are really talking about an incredibly poor country that, of course, had made um, substantial um, progress in terms of infrastructure development, um, basic industrialization, education, public health, and all of that during the Mao years, but nevertheless was still an incredibly poor country, right? So in that sense, the starting point between Russia and China was quite radically different and was not at all a foregone conclusion that history would look like um, as, as it did um, um, in, in, in the 1990s. So what I'm doing in the book is I'm trying to understand how Um, how economists really or economic thinkers who were involved in the debates at the dawn of reform were thinking about the question of what next and how to reform the system, how to introduce market mechanisms into um, what at the time still was largely a command economy. Um, The contrast with Russia is not to say that the Chinese cure would have worked in the Russian case. But I think it rather stands as a warning that the stakes that were involved in the debates in the 1980s in China were incredibly high, which is not to say that it would have been the outcomes would have been identical as, as in Russia and all of that. But still, the, the, the scale and depth of collapse that followed shock therapy in Russia, I think, s- illustrates that um, things could have gone quite terribly wrong in China as well, had, had history evolved um, differently. And I know uh, in China, from reading the history of the various uh, imperial regimes, their sensitivity to social discord and social disruption is very high because many emperors fell from not foreseeing. And and obviously because of the sheer scale and size of population and uh, 
large geographic scale, it's a, it's a formidable challenge. When I first went into China, uh, about 1990, a gentleman took me out to lunch and he said, yes, I work with this planning agency and so forth. And uh, he says, Mr. Johnson, the migration that's taking place right now is as if every citizen of the United States of America went to Baltimore and then walked across to San Diego, California. The whole country, he said, we can't do these things too rapidly. We have to do these things in, in a gradual, continuous way. The transformations are important, but can you imagine the American people stomping across the country with no infrastructure, nowhere to sleep, no, this and that? He, he just was very animated. And, and it woke me up quite clearly that the kind of things I've learned as a PhD student in textbooks and what have you might not be germane to the type of challenge that he was facing. Yeah, um, this is, of course, in 1990, right? So this is after um, after the big clash and the massive yes. crackdown in 1989. And in fact, the spiraling mm -hmm. out of control in, in 88 of, of, of prices. So I think it's important to remember, this is, I think, in some sense, also the story of my book, that in the 80s, um, ideas of very rapid change and, in fact, so-called package um, sorry, package reforms that would have involved um, overnight price liberalization and um, um, very radical tax and wage reforms that, 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 would have, that would have been quite drastic and quite fast were very much on the table, which is something that um, we, we have largely forgotten. So we, we tend mm -hmm. to take mm -hmm. the idea of gradualism as a foregone conclusion, but rather than seeing this as predetermined by something inherent in the Chinese constellation, what I'm trying to argue in the book is that there was a real debate and that there was a real intellectual and political struggle over the direction and approach of reform. Yes. And so how, uh, let, let, I'm thinking of this like a, a theater play. How did people come together to debate or uh, how did people tour the world who were Chinese who had responsibility to, be, to come to the place where they could arrive at a, a plan or a vision of, of how to do this? Yeah, thank you very much for this question. I think one of the things that many of the people that I've interviewed um, have stressed is that the 1980s was really a quite unique um, space for communication in, in China itself, in the sense that after the Cultural Revolution, economics as a discipline was pretty much shattered. At the same time, economics as a discipline was being re-established very quickly and was being set in command. So you had this contradiction of a um, of a discipline that was really just just being revived, just being recreated, and at the same time being elevated to to, to a very powerful position in in the recreation of, of the Chinese system. Um, one specific alliance that emerges in this context is between young Chinese intellectuals who had spent their youth in the countryside, often from the teens to the mid-20s during the Cultural Revolution. Some of them went voluntarily. Many were basically forced to go to the villages. 
um, who returned in the late 1970s when Deng Xiaoping reinstated the university entrance exam, but who continued to have their allegiances with the countryside since they had lived in these villages um, for, for extended periods of their life. And in fact, during their 20s, um, had often engaged in extensive um, reading circles, discussions, in some cases, even very low-key um, experiments with the question of how to reorganize the Chinese countryside, how to reorganize the political economy of agriculture. And these emerging young reform intellectuals formed an alliance with um, first-generation revolutionaries that in China, unlike in Russia, were still around in the 1980s. Um, some of them had also been, or, I mean, a considerable number of them had also been ousted during the Cultural Revolution. So they themselves were returning to the centers of power after a whole period of, of being removed from the system and often also having spent quite extended periods um, in the countryside, um, in, in some cases in, in re-education camps, um, in some cases in prisons, in some cases um, in, 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 in situations of, of, of manual labor um, in, in, in other settings. But anyways, they, they were removed from their positions of influence and returned themselves to the center of power. And um, this older generation revolutionaries, of course, also had grown into thinking about economic policymaking, not least during the Chinese Civil War, when the countryside was incredibly important, and when they were using techniques of economic warfare that involved using market mechanisms um, to reintegrate the economy and overcome hyperinflation. In fact, there are um, interesting episodes of uh, communist trading agencies um, out-speculating speculators by pulling together um, certain kinds of commodities and thereby um, flooding the market with a certain commodity and thereby reversing the um, certain price spikes in, in specific kinds of commodities. But that's, that's just a footnote. The point being that these first-generation revolutionaries um, had first-hand and extensive experiences in using market mechanisms as a policy tool. So when these two groups return to the cities, return um, to, 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 to the centers of power um, to join the efforts of really rebuilding um, the Chinese economic system. Um, they form a very peculiar and very unlikely alliance. Um, so this was one force in the, in the reform debate. On the other hand, um, economists who used to be established economists um, in, 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 in the pre-Cultural Revolution era, of course, also returned to the cities. Um, many of them were actually trained in more or less Soviet orthodoxy um, and formed an alliance which we can broadly think of as an alliance between um, 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 this group of, 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 of um, people who were trained in economics proper um, with, with um, young scientists who were at the time studying the latest techniques in, in mathematics and computer science and so on. So um, this was a quite quite extraordinary um, mix of people and quite extraordinary um, setting of, of communication and debate um, in, in, in trying to, to remake China, really. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, earlier this year, there's a documentary filmmaker named Adam Curtis, who's with the BBC, and uh, he did a, I think it was a six-part series called I can't get you out of my head. And it kept shifting between the United States, Britain, China, and a little bit of Russia in the earlier phases. But he was basically talking about disorientation. 
and he had a big episode about how Mao's wife was essentially very influential, then set aside, and then tried to come back. And that post-cultural revolution, uh, how would I say, intensity of filling the void was, was a very, very marked, uh, it had a very big impact on me just to watch that segment. And I can't imagine being an intellectual and being courageous after having been sent to the countryside, but obviously things did change. Yeah, um, and we have to remember that some degree of change, of course, already happened still under Mao. The Nixon visit happened still under Mao. Um, in 1975, before Mao's death, several of the key leaders, including Chen Yun and um, Deng Xiaoping, temporarily returned to Beijing and all of that. But then after Mao's death in 1976, there cannot be a question that the attempts of late Maoism at continuous revolution and um, mobilizing the masses and, and, and all of that is, is, is entirely over. Um, the, the hair of Mao, Huo Guofeng, um, the dedicated um, hair of, 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 of Mao, um, then attempts another big push, more or less a, a Soviet-style um, big push. Um, this time, however, um, meant to be a, an internationalized version of big push industrialization, fueled by foreign technology and financed by petroleum exports. However, these um, projected petroleum findings um, were, were never found, so that um, this kind of model um, of working towards industrialization um, very quickly ran out of steam and, in fact, um, brought the danger of foreign indebtedness, as, uh, as Branko Milanovic in a recent post has also been um, 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 discussing um, in, in relation to, to my book, um, brought, brought the danger of foreign indebtedness um, right up on the agenda in China. So that it was clear that that model also couldn't work. So there was really the question of what now? How can we move forward? Um, while um, while um, it became clear fairly early on, is my impression, that um, that more market would be on the agenda. Already in 1979, Deng Xiaoping talks about um, how, how markets could not be limited to capitalism, how socialism should be able to also use markets and all of that, even though it's not yet an official national policy to move towards markets. It's very much in the discourse. It's very much um, on, on the minds of the reform economists. But the big question that arises is, even if we agree we want more market, how do we introduce market mechanisms into a system that previously has basically been run as, as a command economy with elements of, of, of planning and elements of, 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 of anarchy. So, um, so how do we introduce market mechanisms starting from, from, from the industrial organization that was inherited from the Mao period? And that is really the big question of the reform debate of the 1980s. So on my mind, of course, there is tension between those who want reform and those who don't want reform. But um, from the interviews that I've led, my sense is that the tension between those who were dedicated to market reforms, um, but disagreed on the right approach to pursuing marketization, was at least as, as intense as that between those who, 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 who were in principle um, 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 skeptical of, of moving towards the market and those who, who argued for, for more markets. 
I once made a video with a gentleman who lived in Hong Kong, I believe he was Dutch, named Frank de Cotter. And he had written a book about the Cultural Revolution and its aftermath in this period. And uh, I don't uh, recall a great deal about it, but the kind of, uh, what might I call, severity and scale of the challenge. And, and also he had talked about uh, people who had been moved to the countryside were experimenting with markets, particularly local agricultural markets, so that there was a little bit of a foreshadowing of greater reliance on markets. Yeah, there, there was a foreshadowing, both in terms of um, very local um, experiments, but also intellectually, in the sense that um, that the people like Chen Yitzhi, um or Zhang Musheng and so on would have already started to discuss how agriculture could be organized differently and um, would also have already started to engage um, in conversations with very senior leaders such as Hu Yaobang, um, who, in fact, as it, as it so happens in the early 70s, apparently, according to, to some of these younger um, reformers, um, was more radical than the younger reformers themselves. So clearly, the question of how to move from a more or less universally collectivized um, form of, of agricultural production to one that involved more household responsibility and, and more, um, more orientation towards market incentives um, was already being debated um, relatively early on. But the kind of dynamic that it took on after Deng Xiaoping um, ascended to power after 1978, I think still does mark a, a qualitative um, and quite dramatic shift. Um, and that has to do both with marketization, but also with the adjustment of the so-called price scissors. Um, under the Mao system, the relative prices between agricultural goods and industrial goods were set such as to organize a continuous um, extraction of um, surpluses or um, tra tragically at some points, of course, even more than surpluses um, from the countryside to, to, the, to the urban industrial economy. So in 1978, Deng Xiaoping um, ra raises the plan price for, um, for agricultural goods um, substantially, which actually is an important element in the takeoff of agriculture. And then, um, of course, um, the, the first experiments that are happening in, in, in the late 1970s are possibly not entirely new, just because of what you, what you just referred to. But what I think is qualitatively different is that um, the central leadership starts to pick up on this and, um, and um, sends out um, research delegation and carriages some of these young intellectuals, such as Chen Yitzhi, Wang Xiaoqiang and so on, who return to the cities um, to go out and research um, how these experiments are playing out and report back and analyze and systematically evaluate um, what to do with these experiments and whether they can be transferred into national policy, which then um, prepares the ground for, for this, these changes to move from bottom-up, um, small-scale peripheral exper experimentations to, towards becoming um, national policy. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember, as I mentioned earlier, my friend who had talked about the migration of the entire population across the United States was over the course of our lunch describing to me the scale of the needed change in how food was produced and distributed. Uh, I remember reading uh, 
years later, a man, a physician who's at the Cleveland Clinic, he was at Cornell at the time, named Colin Campbell, wrote a book called The China Study about the transformation of diet from subsistence farming to being in an urban area and working, I would say, eating more protein, in this case, pork, fish, and other things. But how the production of food for a population of that scale could be transformed so that there was not starvation and so that people could be mobile. I think that's a fabulous, I don't know, what you might call experiment in human organization to learn from. Yeah, and um, I think this is a very important point to keep in mind in the sense that it was, of course, not simply about marketization. It was not simply about moving towards a more efficient kind of economic system, but it was really also about development, right? It was really about lifting people out of poverty and um, trying to solve the basic problem of, of um, food provisioning and, um, and, and provisioning of other basic needs that 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 had still been um, had had not been um, addressed uh, sufficiently um, satisfactory. Um, so that that certainly is, is an, an incredibly important element of the starting point of reform. In fact, many of my interview partners were stressing um, saying in the beginning of reform, this was not a theoretical question of whether market is better or, or, or plan is better or, or what, what is the ideal type of system. But it was really a question of addressing the problem that about 200 million peasants were still poorly fed and poorly clothed and that someone like Chen Yun um, had come to the conclusion that if um, reform wouldn't, wouldn't be successful, then um, the local carters from the countryside would be leading the masses um, to, to the gates of the cities and basically demanding a better material um, conditions. So that was, in that sense, a very pressing problem of, 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 of basic needs, um, in, in some sense more directly than a, than a question of idealized um, idealized visions of, of, of perfect uh, market economies or something like that. Yeah, when I read your book, I had this vision of kind of what I will call idealistic figures. The person from the West, the advanced economies are way ahead of China. You got to just do that system as soon as possible to get up and moving. And then you have a different perspective in China, understanding the scope and the scale of these transformations. And they're viewing the market not as salvation, they're viewing the market as a tool. And as you said, underlying development objectives and the market as a means to an end, not as an end in itself. And I, I find it very interesting to follow the dialogue that you presented. Yeah, so um, that is certainly the perspective that in the end prevails in the 1980s. Um, but towards the mid 1980s, the idea that um, you could not have a hybrid system. You could not have plan and market at the same time, since this would be creating too much friction and would, in fact, um, create a situation that possibly would be worse than the system before reform was becoming a more and more pronounced um, kind of opinion. So yeah, um, for, for those idea... young people, this was during the just after the Reagan and Thatcher uh, people came on stage. And so you were hearing that other side of the debate quite vividly throughout the West. 
Yeah, so this is really um, uh, the, the same kind of logic as, as the rise of neoliberalism has has um, brought to the policy agenda in, in, in other places. Um, interestingly, um, this, this kind of way of thinking about economic system reform in the Chinese context was introduced by people like Milton Friedman, who visited China already early on. However, it was also importantly articulated by Eastern European emigre economists, such as Otashik, um, Bros, um, Straminsky, and so on, um, who who were who used to be involved in reforms in their own countries, um, and then basically were exiled um, after these reforms had failed. And they had a sense that the attempts at gradualist reforms in Eastern Europe basically had played out to be a failure. So therefore, they thought that um, the, the, the economic system could not be reformed by tinkering around with the existing institutions, but that instead you had to find a holistic solution that would provide a blueprint for different kind of economy. And um, then it the task would be to really um, overturn the existing um, system and create that kind of blueprint, which is a radically different logic from that that ultimately prevailed in China, where instead the existing planning institutions and institutions of the planned economy were used as entities for market creation and actually as active elements um, that, that, that helped to quite literally create a market infrastructure instead of assuming that by abolishing the plan and by abolishing the institutions of, of the plant economy, a market economy would be arising like phoenix from the ashes, just, just spontaneously by itself. So as you move on in the 80s, uh, and you read and study the development strategies, are knowledge-intensive things, I mean, obviously, after 2000, knowledge-intensive strategies and education and tech-related things have taken hold. But what was what was the strategy related to foreign direct investment and what you might call the inward infusion of knowledge at the time that your book is focused on? Yeah, um, so there is, of course, uh, the special economic zones that already start in the late 1970s, but that is then being elevated um, to a much more um, systemic strategy towards the late 1980s under the label of the so-called coastal development strategy, which is still um, really designed by Zhao Ziyang, even though he's often not being given credit for it since it only really takes off in the 1990s when, um, when Zhao Ziyang has um, long left the scene or has been long forced out. Um, so the, the idea of the coastal development strategy was basically to use China's advantage in having um, very cheap, disciplined labor and a relatively good infrastructure, and to use this to basically attract foreign direct investment, then export goods, initially predominantly in the light industries, and um, thereby generate a, an export surplus that would then um, enable China to finance the upgrading of its upstream industries, um, to, to improve its technological base and also to learn from foreign um, management techniques and, and, and te technolo sorry, technologies. But um, all of this always with an eye on 
avoiding um, foreign indebtedness so that um, a strategy of export surplus would give China leeway to import certain um, things that were critical for, for, for the country's development without having to um, rely too heavily on, 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 on foreign credit um, as such. So that kind of strategy was designed in the late, late 80s. Um, it was basically modeled on the experience of the East Asian tigers. So the idea was that, um, that Taiwan and Korea um, by that time had more or less um, um, developed so much that wages had risen and that they had more or less um, were, were, were on the way to losing their comparative advantage in, in low-wage um, export-oriented manufacturing so that China could basically take on um, that, that, that gap that was opening up um, and, um, and um, thereby um, also, of course, importantly, rely on capital from, from, from the East Asian tigers. So basically, um, really, really um, step into the gap that was um, opening up as these economies um, were, were on their way towards um, climbing up the value chain. I also remember in that window of time, the Japanese were starting to engage in outward foreign direct investment where their uh, awareness that their manufacturing uh, prowess would be subject to great competition as the human capital developed in the Tigers, but on the scale of China as well. And my sense was in this, I worked in investments in emerging in non-Japan Asia primarily at that time, was that when the Chinese devalued quite markedly in 1994, it reoriented the direction or the pattern of foreign direct investment, both out of Japan, but from many places around the world towards China. And of course, the, what you might call a hole that emerged in the balance of payments of places like Malaysia and Thailand, then played out in the Asia crisis thereafter in the substantial devaluations that they uh, endured. But I think you're, uh, you're, you're seeing as, as something the scale of China makes a successful transformation, their influence on the world indirectly, not, I'm not talking about in debate now, but the influence of the size and scale and potential of that economy becomes very, very powerful. Yeah, and I think this is also something that has been on the minds of Chinese reformers, not in the sense of um, trying to forge ahead to become more powerful than anyone else, but in the sense of being acutely aware that um, China, China's size makes it a huge responsibility to take the domestic um, problems very seriously and that the problems or the challenges, I should say, of reform presented itself quite differently and the challenge of development itself presented itself quite differently in, in the Chinese context compared to much smaller um, countries, including the neighboring East Asian countries. So that, that, that acute awareness of the scale of the problem, I think, is, is there throughout. In another uh, meeting in my life later, I was meeting with a Chinese government official and he said he was criticizing the United States for not engaging in more transformational assistance to the population. And he could see the anti-Chinese uh, sentiment building toward, uh, as it relates to globalization and the stress that America was under. 
And he said something to me. He said, the Americans never understood that if Tonga wanted to develop, a few of their people could come over and get educated in American colleges. They could tie us up with a special trade agreement and America would be the tugboat that would pull Tonga up the ladder. But he said, when we're four times the size of the United States, when we start this development at 140th of the per capita GDP, when they tie us to them, we were so big, we could swamp the tugboat that you couldn't pull us up. We'd pull you down or we met somewhere in the middle. That, and that his point was, there are gains from trade, but the Americans mismanaged it. And the American elites are now under great pressure. And the American elites are blaming China. Yeah, I, I just wanted in relation to that, um, stress one aspect of the coastal development strategy that actually resurfaced in the context of the so-called dual circulation strategy that has been um, emphasized in, in more recent years. And that is that the coastal development strategy, I think, was never meant to turn chi all of China into basically an export manufacturing zone um, for, for companies headquartered in Europe and the United States, right? Rather, the idea was, as, as I've tried to say, um, to, to, to generate um, an export surplus, which then could be used to develop China's own economy and to develop it in a way that it would be a complete economy in the sense that it would have all the important sectors within its own domestic system, rather than just being a supplier or just being the workshop of the world, as of course it has been for, 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 um, for the last uh, two decades or so. But the ambition, I think, um, has long been to move beyond being, being the, the, the work bank of companies headquartered elsewhere, but to develop, um, eventually develop um, competitiveness and develop um, whole industries within, the, within um, its own system, which I think is important in trying to understand the relationship between the United States and China, since it kind of um, shows that the Chimerica type of relationship where China was the work bank and the US was the, the headquarters. So in some sense, that relationship that we used to read on the back of, of, of our iPhones until very recently, designed in California and manufactured in China, right? Um, that that wasn't going to last from the Chinese perspective um, from pr pretty much if you read the documents from the late 1980s, it was already on the agenda that China did not want to just be the, the manufacturer, but it, 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 um, it, it realized that it had to take that place in the, in the first instance in order to um, develop the preconditions for more ambitious industrial development. Which is not to say that there has been one great conspiracy that dates back to the late 1980s, but just in terms of the development strategy, I think that has been, um, has been inherent. And as we saw, uh, you might say the Americans had the misperception that they were going to fall into line as that supply platform. The Chinese was using their surplus and in their investments and some of the foreign direct investment to improve their understanding of knowledge intensive value added. And uh, I think the China 2025 report when it was released created the stark contrast between the two visions. 
But I'll tell you a great story. I had a woman that I worked with at the United Nations from China who was a descendant of Confucius. And she did a lot of work with me when we were forming INET, building a conference in Hong Kong, meetings in Shenzhen, and I met her father. And one day, there's a thing, there's like a consumer uh, electronics show convention in Las Vegas every year. And I'm sitting at home and this gentleman who's the father calls me and he says, I'm coming to New York tomorrow. Would you like to have lunch? And I said, yeah, sure. So I sit down in this Italian restaurant. This man walks in with this box and he said, we're going to have lunch, but I got to ask you first. He said, we just won the grand prize at the Consumer Electronics Show and you have to find a way to give this to Senator Joe Biden. And I said, okay. And I knew... Joe Biden was about to get what's called a Four Freedoms Medal at the Roosevelt Institute, which was a place I was affiliated with. But I said, I'll try. I don't know him well. I worked in the Senate for a few years, but I'll do that. So he then sits down. He takes out another copy of the phone, and he shows me this phone. And he said, Joe Biden came and gave a speech to us in Shenzhen about how we were going to make the parts and America was going to design these phones. And it frustrated us so much that we went and developed our own phone and we brought it to the Las Vegas show. We won the grand prize. And I want you to give this to him to thank him for inspiring us to build our own phone that could compete with the Apple iPhone. And uh, I will say the graphics were beautiful. It actually had 3D for the video. I watched a picture of a plane landing on an aircraft carrier, which is perhaps an ominous symbol, but the, uh, but the whole idea of the pride of climbing up that value chain was in evidence at that lunch. It was really, uh, really, really very market. Yeah, um, yeah, I think this is a great anecdote and it uh, encapsulates so much of, 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 of the development of, of US-China relations in the last years. I think it's also important to remember that, of course, um, China has been incredibly reliant on American technology and American software and so on um, until very recently, right? I mean, we see this with the computer chip shortages. We see this with the big announcement um, very recently that uh, that that uh, Huawei might now um, have developed its own um, operating system for, for smartphones because all the Chinese phones previously have been operating on Google Android, right? The Chinese state-owned banks were running on on, 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 on software that was basically um, Cisco kind of software and so on, right? So you have, you, you, you have had a lot of American software right at the heart um, of the Chinese system. In fact, you, you, you probably still have <laughs> a, a lot of American software right at the heart of, 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 of China's system, right? So I think in some sense we are at the tipping point. I mean, it's kind of the 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 the, the staggering thing is that China, some Chinese come. I mean, the whole story around 5G kind of is a story of a Chinese company reaching the technological frontier in an infrastructure technology that is um, incredibly important for the world, right? And this is in some sense a first. I mean, one when has it been the case that a non-European or American company has reached the technological frontier in a key technology that everybody will rely on? That is, I mean, I cannot come up with another example. So I think this is a lot of the tension that we are dealing with has to do with these with these kind of questions. 
The uh, energy that I see now as polarizing has something to do with that Chinese not conforming to an American vision of the system, as Orville Schell would talk about. But there's another side to it that I, I'm interested in exploring with you, which is your book suggests that there was kind of an experimental, improvisational way in which Chinese officials view the markets as a tool. And when you look at the United States now, or parts of Europe, UK, you see a lot of distress because unbridled reliance on the market is not doing everything that it should in relation to education, gender and racial inclusion, climate, and even one might say the episode of the financial crisis of 2008-9, where the state had to snap their fingers and come forward with roughly $800 billion because of, how we say, misdeeds or, or misunderstandings related to an unbridled market process. Can the West learn from the way in which the Chinese approached economic development for the economic transformations that the West needs to make in the next phase that it appears the Biden administration is embarking upon, or at least some subset of them? Yeah, thank you. This is a great question. Um, just to be sure, China's uh, transformation and reform has, of course, come along with uh, very deepened inequalities, um, environmental issues, and especially inequalities along lines of um, gender and ethnicity. So just just to be sure that that there's no okay. well, romanticization that well. happened. I'll, I'll interject one other thing that really surprised me. Some people came to visit me. They make something called the Hurun Report about wealth concentration. And they this was 2015. And they came into my office and they said, we've done this study. There are 535 people between the Congress and the Senate. And then there's the Supreme Court justices and there's the Obama cabinet. And altogether, they're worth six and a half billion dollars. He said, and there are about 203 people between advisors and members of the National People's Congress and aggregate them all together in an economy that's two-thirds the size, and they're worth $70 billion. And they said, so the concentration of wealth and the question of whether politics can broadly serve people, where people act like the Chinese economy is more receptive and sensitive, will be tested by this concentration of wealth in what in America we call plutocracy. And shortly thereafter, Wang Shishan led something called the anti-corruption campaign. So I sensed that in some ways they were responsive. I don't know enough about the internal coalition politics and what was really on the agenda, but it really was the case that, I guess I'm, I'm putting an asterisk on my question to you, along with gender and other things, the danger of money politics controlling 
governance that the market now has captured the state might be even higher in China than it is in America. Yeah, um, I think this is a very stunning figure that you just reported and, and, and immensely interesting. It might also tell us something about the distribution of rich people um, between different sectors of elites, right, across um, politics and, 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 and the financial world and all of that. Um, to maybe start by going back to your um, initial question, um, I think what we can possibly learn from the Chinese is um, to think not as much in dichotomies of state versus market, but to see rather possibilities for um, state market participation as a possibly productive arrangement, which in some sense, the initiatives that we, can, that, that we now see coming out of DC in terms of public investment um, agencies is, is basically something along these lines, right? Where the idea is that there is a, a publicly owned entity that would be um, quite literally participating in the market by investing in certain needed infrastructure, which is not the same as just um, doing monetary policy and hoping that by lowering the interest rates, this um, infrastructure would be forthcoming by itself. Um, but at the same time, it's also not the same as planning, right? Because, uh, I mean, it, it requires a degree of planning, but it's not it's not the kind of um, 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 old style planning where you have a whole apparatus um, of, of planning and institutions that really can can implement from 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 the very top to the bottom um, to, to the to the very details on, on, on the on, on, on the ground. Um, so I think in, in, in that regard, um, we, we might be able to to learn something from China. At the same time, I think it is quite ironic that um, at the very moment um, when the US is at, at, at probably the height of a debate around um, redefining the relationship between the state and the market in ways that we haven't seen in decades, at the same time, the demonization of a different kind of state market relationship in China is also reaching a peak. So it seems like there, there, there are two, two quite con contradictory discourses happening at, at, at the very same, um, same moment in, in, in time, um, which I'm not sure if it's necessarily helpful um, for, for either of these two discourses. I have a friend who's a uh, member of the US government, works on national security in China, and he said to me, I'm so discouraged because we're not learning from the Chinese model. It's been demonized. Our model is failing. I'm wondering if we need an alien to invade this planet and teach us all how to do economics the right way for people. <laughs> and yeah. He said about two weeks ago. And uh, but I think I think you're you're exactly right that the it's almost indigestible to learn the lessons in which you might call the echo, echoes of a Cold War nationalistic mentality in the United States would make it very hard to stand on center stage and admire and emulate the Chinese explicitly. But we can yeah, still learn. It, I think there's actually also an implicit um, lesson of the Chinese trajectory. Um, I, I do not think that we can understand China's reforms by conceptualizing it as having copied the Singaporean model or having copied um, the practices of, of, of West Germany in terms of its social market economy or something like that. I do not think that the Chinese have in a wholesale fashion imported another country's 
model. But what they did do is that they have studied very carefully specific policies and have studied very carefully under what kind of conditions these policies were implemented in other countries and then compared these conditions very carefully with their own local conditions and then have asked themselves what of these foreign policies can we implement in our own context, possibly with a certain adaptation to the specific conditions that we are facing. And in fact, the Chinese, of course, have not been shy at all in learning from, from American experiences. In the 1980s, one of the um, interesting experiences that, um, that um, China did, did, um, um, did, did study um, was the post-war transition of the United States from the war economy to back to a more market-based economy, where some similar challenges um, emerged, as in the context um, from the transition from a socialist plant economy to a more market-based economy. So, of course, those two cases are not entirely identical, but there are certain parallels that make, um, that make the comparison relevant. And um, in the United States, of course, there were almost universal price controls um, at, at the peak of, of, of World War II. And then after the war, um, in fact, um, a number of, um, of, of Chinese, uh, sorry, of American um, high profile economists, including several presidents of the American Economic Association, including prominent names like Paul Samuelson and Irving Fisher, were actually warning against liberalizing prices too quickly and were arguing that prices should be liberalized in a fashion that um, whenever bottlenecks were overcome in a specific um, 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 production line, then the prices could be liberalized. So let's say if there's a bottleneck in steel, then only once the supply of steel has caught up, you can liberalize the price for steel. That didn't happen in the American case, um, basically because of, of the political dynamic that was playing out at the time, um, which then resulted in, as, as the Atlanta Fed has actually just been arguing recently, right, which then resulted in a, in, in a period of rather high inflation um, that cancelled out a lot of the um, savings that were accumulated um, during the, the Second World War, thanks to the very high growth rates during the war and the price stability that had been achieved um, by, by the price controls during the war. So the, this kind of experience was studied carefully in China in the 1980s and actually helped um, inform um, um, someone like, um, like Li Yining and others who were arguing against the idea of rapid price liberalization in the context of China's own transition. Now, ironically, as the, um, as le, as the Atlanta Fed um, has been arguing, um, the, the, the current situation after the COVID pandemic um, has a certain parallel with the, with the transition from, from, from the war economy in the sense that the economy had been kind of on hold and is now going back to a different structural um, pattern, right, which involves um, important bottlenecks, as we have seen with the shooting up of, of commodity prices. So I think it's, it's, really, it's really not um, trying to copy from China in any kind of wholesale fashion or trying to pursue some sort of a Beijing model or something like that. I think that, that would be absurd. But I think um, there is an important lesson in, in um, thinking creatively about history and um, taking historical lessons seriously and um, adapting them to, um, to contemporary and um, big policy questions. And um, in, in, in that regard, I think um, the, the Chinese have, have been quite successful and at, at, at several critical occasions. I'm learning a lot in listening to you, to you today because the kind of questions that are often asked to me may not be the right questions. In other words, 
China learned how to make a transition toward the market from the state and use gradualism rather than shock treatment. It appears now in the realm of climate and other things that some of the Western countries, particularly the United States, have to make a transition towards a greater role for the state. And so it's, it's not at the point of war demobilization, it's at the what I'll call climate war preparation infrastructure, knowledge intensive rebuilding of uh, schools and other things. Uh, and so I think the sustainability, whether it be environmental, financial, or social, depends upon the, uh, the pragmatism. That, that's the part that I loved in reading your book, was the pragmatism, the non-hardened, ideological, improvisational, experimental mindset, but it's going in a different direction than China had to go in the period that you describe in your book. Yeah, um, I think one aspect of the Chinese approach in the 1980s that is also worth noting is that there's a very clear distinction between what I'm calling in the book, I'm building on the so-called um, state ancient statecraft theory of heavy and light, the what is heavy and what is light. That is a very clear distinction between the important and essential and the not so important and peripheral, which is a distinction that after the COVID pandemic should uh, uh, seem quite familiar to us since we have all gone through about a year of um, um, reducing the economy to its essential core, right? So we should have a pretty good empirical reference point on what is essential and, and, and what might not be as essential. And I think that um, China's transformation was really organized uh, around a, an acute awareness um, of how how certain essential parts of the system are hanging together, and um, that one one should not one should not take rush movement in the essential parts of the system. One can liberalize quickly in the inessential parts. You can liberalize factories that are producing bikinis overnight, nothing wrong with that. But you cannot liberalize your steel sector overnight, because if you liberalize your steel sector overnight, all downstream industries will be shocked, right? If you liberalize your your um, your bikini <laughs> um, factory, then that, that, that would not have any, any ripple effects throughout the system. So I think that kind of logic of understanding very clearly what are the essential parts and um, what are the less essential parts, and then thinking about how one can steer um, the essential parts towards a transformation of the system as a whole is is really is really another important um, lesson that emerges from from the Chinese story. And I think that in fact this is something that we can see as part of the government pra practice to some degree until today. If we look at um, how the Chinese are dealing with their own inflation question, then we can see that um, they the they have basically um, made it very clear that monetary policy that is uh, uh, cracking down on in, through monetary policy is the means of last resort. Instead, what, one, what the Chinese are trying to do is to um, contain the price rises of essential goods um, first, um, thereby um, avoiding ripple effects throughout the system, and thereby um, 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 containing cost-push inflation by focusing on the essential element that is that is unleashing that that kind of that kind of dynamic, rather than um, by constraining monetary supply for the economy as a whole. So that kind of logic we can see again and again in 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 all sorts of, of economic policy decisions. And you've recently written a very uh, 
interesting, provocative piece in Project Syndicate about how the Chinese efforts to address inflation may have benefits for other countries, most perhaps particularly the United States. Yeah, I mean, if um, inflation is the biggest threat um, to to um, to the prospects for um, for investing on a large scale into urgently needed infrastructure, then um, the fact that China is um, moving towards containing its own inflationary dynamic, um, taking this together with the consideration that, of course, um, given the current structure of supply chains, any kind of major increase in, in, in investments into physical infrastructure would involve quite significant imports of, of machinery and so on from China, then I think it, it, it becomes clear that, in fact, China's containment of inflation, if anything, is helping the American project of trying to rebuild um, its own, um, its own um, um, economic base. So I think this is a, a lesson that can possibly help us to um, think about the post-COVID recovery in, in terms that might be um, more, more um, mutually beneficial rather than um, seeing it um, predominantly as um, American recovery somehow um, being, being in exclusively in competition with China. Well, Isabella, when I was a young engineer at MIT, through a total coincidence, I ended up in a class on international trade and then coming under the influence of a man named Charles Kindleberger. And he convinced this future oceanographer and naval architect to become an economist. And he was very, very... Uh, how would I say this? He was just very charming. Took us all to the symphony to watch the rehearsals of the Boston Symphony, he had coffee, mentored all of about seven or eight of us. And I remembered one day I was walking across the Memorial Bridge with him. And on the radio was the song by Bob Dylan called The Ballad of a Thin Man. And it's in the kind of one of the pinnacle moments in the song is, there's something happening here. You don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? And Kindleberger turned to me and he said, there's something happening here and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Johnson? At least not yet. And I smiled and he said, you've got to add economics as a second major. Da 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 da. And, and he was very energizing. But, I, but when I listen to you today, I, there's all kinds of songs always go through my head. I've worked in the world of music I'm always reminded when I hear someone like you with this historical kind of Kindleberger texture and that conceptual ability to, which you might call, transport us to the challenges of our present time. Marvin Gaye's song, What's Going On? In the third verse, he says, we gotta find a way to bring some understanding here today. And in this last hour, I think you would have made Marvin Gaye grin. Thank you very much for your offering and, and for your uh, sharing your thoughts with us and for writing this wonderful book. Thank you so much for having me and for engaging in this uh, very enlightening conversation. Thank you for your great questions. It was really great. Thank you. And as we get down the tracks, I want to have you come back on as you're moving forward and building in the kind of texture and depth you have here, and I know you have some forthcoming papers in the Journal of Economic History and other things. 
And as I know Bob Pollan's working on climate, the collaboration between the U.S. and China, there'll be many, many more chapters <laughs> for you and I, if I'm lucky, on this podcast. I am much looking forward to those forthcoming chapters. Thank you so much. Thank you. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing